would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we were starting chapter 7, Jesus going to the, this feast that we'll talk a little bit more about today. We were looking then at the first 24 verses and Jesus' interaction at the feast with the crowd and people hearing him and hearing what he was saying. And today we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 25 of chapter 7. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. Speaking openly and and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be going with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me when I where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am? You cannot come. On the last day of the great the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who not only has preserved your word through all of these years, but 
opens our eyes and our hearts to understand what it means. And so we pray for the Spirit to be at work doing just that right now. Help us to see Jesus. Deepen our love for you and deepen our motivation to go out and live like who you want us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know anything about the history of the Bible, the history of Israel, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, if you know anything about church history, then you know that the country, the nation, the people of Israel have lived almost their entire existence with tension and conflict with their neighboring nations and states and the belief systems of those people. And just think about it as we kind of trace through the Old Testament and New Testament in church history. They had to deal with the Egyptians during the time of Moses. They dealt with the Canaanites during the time when they were entering into the Promised Land. They dealt with the Philistines during the time of David. They dealt with the Syrians during the time of Elijah. They dealt with Babylon during the time of Daniel. They dealt with the Persians during the time of Esther. They dealt with the Samaritans during the time of Ezra. They dealt with the Greeks during the time of the Maccabees and dealt with the Romans during the first century. And of course, we also know church history and the fact that Israel has had to deal with Islam and deal with the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition. And of course, Adolf Hitler. If we even just think about the second half of the 20th century, we see Israel dealing with 16 wars or armed conflicts with Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Jordan, the Soviet Union, Algeria, Morocco, the PLO, Hezbollah, and Hamas. The people of Israel have known and experienced incredible tension and conflict with the nations and the states and the belief systems around them. As we come to John chapter 7, we see tension and conflict once again heating up. This time, not with a nation, not with a state, not with a people group, but with one individual man, Jesus Christ. This is the last fall of Jesus' earthly life. It's the final feast of the tabernacles that Jesus would attend. Just a number of months after these events that we're reading today, in the spring during the Passover feast, Jesus would be arrested and tried and executed. And leading up to that, as we begin here in chapter 7, we're starting to see things heating up. Heating up at this week-long feast of the tabernacles. We've already seen earlier in John that the Jewish religious authorities had stated their desire to kill Jesus because of his claims, because of his teaching. But as we come to the last half of John chapter 7, we see them putting the wheels in motion to have Jesus arrested. And we see more and more people dividing over who Jesus was and what Jesus did. That's what I want us to look at today as we consider these verses for just a little bit of time. I want us to look and see what John is telling us about who Jesus is, about what Jesus did, and then the division that Jesus brings. So first of all, what does John tell us here about who John or who Jesus is? 
If you've been following along in the Gospel of John, then you know that John has been showing us over and over again throughout the Gospel who Jesus is. And he gives us more of the picture here in these verses. What does he tell us? Well, one of the things he tells us is that Jesus is a real man from a real place. Look at uh, back at chapter 7, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, there's lots of irony going on here in these verses. The people of Jerusalem think that they know where Jesus came from. Now, what they're thinking is that he came from Nazareth because they know that that's where he had roots and where he had grown up. So the first thing that we see is that these people are wrong. They're ignorant of Jesus's birth story. We know that he was born in Bethlehem, just like the Old Testament said that he would be born there. And we'll see in just a minute that rather than correcting them, Jesus used the opportunity to talk about the ultimate place from which he came. But but before we get there, I just want you to notice first that Jesus is a real man from a real place. Yes, Jesus is God. But he is fully man as well. He was born in a place. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. He moved to Nazareth as a boy and he grew up there. What we need to appreciate the humanity of Jesus. Jesus learned how to read and how to write. Jesus played in the streets of Nazareth. Jesus would have had to be called home at times by Mary because it was dinner time. Jesus and his siblings and his parents would have sat around the dinner table and talked about their day and what transpired. Jesus watched his dad and learned carpentry. Jesus would have had to been told when it was time to go to bed and when it was time to turn off the lamps. As a young man, he certainly would have had friends that he did things with. He went with his family to church, to the synagogue, and they worshipped. It's highly likely that Jesus maybe even went to a synagogue potluck. Perhaps he even was involved in making some of the food that he would take to share with the people. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus had a social life. Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully a man, a human being. And we didn't read the Confession of Faith from the Westminster Confession in the second service. We did in the first service since we were doing the baptism in the second service. I would commend it to you to go back and read later today. And There in the confession, it talks so hopefully about how Jesus is still a man. In his ascension, as he's at the right hand of the Father, he is still fully man. He serves us as God-man. And that's an important and encouraging truth to us because he is one of us. He knows us. He understands what it's like to be one of us. And he relates to us. This is who Jesus is. He's a real man from a real place. But as we continue to go on in the verses, we see that Jesus is also sent by the father. You can see that in verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. 
It's interesting that Jesus didn't see the need to correct the people who wrongly thought that he was born in Nazareth. And they also, he didn't see the need to correct their false understanding of verse 27 of the Messiah would show up spontaneously and nobody would know where he came from. That wasn't true either. But what he did was he used the opportunity to tell them ultimately where he came from. He came from the Father. The Father in heaven sent him. He sent Jesus to earth. And he knows the Father, and the Father is true. Jesus is a real man from a real place. Jesus is sent by the Father to earth. We also see that Jesus is in control. You can see that in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John doesn't give us details here of exactly what happened in this moment. We don't know if Jesus left or perhaps he did another miracle or his supernatural power came to bear in such a way that nobody was able to touch him. We, we aren't given those details, but what we do know is that Jesus's hour to be arrested and tried and executed was not yet. And so nobody could touch him. It shows us that Jesus is in control. That the timeline of Jesus's life happened according to God's plan and not man's. Came across a good illustration of that reality, that truth this week. During the French Revolution in the late 18th century, the idea of human reason took the place of God for most people. And one of those people was a man named Voltaire, a famous writer during that time. Well known for lots of different genres of writing, but also well known because of his criticism against Christianity. He wrote that in 50 years, no one would even remember Christianity. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more, he said. He said, my single hand shall destroy the edifice that it took 12 apostles to rear. Well, 20 years went by. Christianity remained. But Voltaire died. And on his deathbed, Voltaire remembered Christianity. A doctor attending to him recorded his last words. Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell and you will go with me. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Fifty years after Voltaire's boast about how Christianity would not be remembered, in the house where he made that boast, in the house where he uttered his final words, it had become the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society. And they were mass producing Bibles for people to read. You see, God's in control. God is in control and not man. And it's important for us to remember that. It's a great encouragement to us. We, we, we echo with the words of J.C. Ryle when he says, Christians live in a world where God overrules all times and events and where nothing can happen but by, the, by God's permission. Christians may boldly say to every cross, you could have no power against me except it were given to you from above. Jesus is in control. And what an incredible encouragement that is to God's people because we remember the promise that God promises to work all things for the good of his people. The timeline and the plan of our lives is under the sovereign administration of the Lord God Almighty. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every cell in your body. And he has perfectly ordained each of our days 
all that is to happen to us and all that we are to do. There is nothing in our lives that takes him by surprise. And what a comforting thought that is. Jesus is a real man from a real place. He is sent by the Father. He is in control. And he is a worker of miracles. We've seen that already in John, but we see it again in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs that this man has done? Many of the people believed Jesus and it was partly because they recognized that all the signs and all the wonders and the miracles that he had done proved that he is who he says he is. He had done plenty of miracles and so much so that the people reasoned he has to be the promised Messiah. That is who Jesus is. He is a worker of miracles. But lastly, you can also see who Jesus is in verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to him, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What we see is that Jesus is on a mission. The father sent Jesus into the world on a mission with a plan. Jesus told them, I'm going to be around you a little bit longer. It's only going to be a matter of months. And then I'm going back to the father. The Pharisees, uh, the chief priests, they didn't understand what he was saying. They thought maybe he was just going to leave the area and go uh, teach to some Greek speaking Jews. But Jesus was making another point here. Jesus was making the point that he was there on a mission. His father had sent him to earth with a plan and his mission was to be arrested in God's timing, to be tried and found guilty, wrongly so, and then to be executed. His mission was to go to the cross. His mission was to die on the cross, to pay for the sins of his people, to be buried in a tomb, to be resurrected from the grave on the third day, to defeat sin and death forever, to ascend back to heaven, to be at the right hand of the father. That's the mission that Jesus was sent here to accomplish. And he did. And as we hear Jesus speaking about the mission that he's on, we move from seeing who Jesus is to what he does. We see that in verses 37 through 39. Now, before we jump in to look at what Jesus does in those verses, let's remind ourselves of the context. Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. It was one of the three great feasts for Israel. It was a time when Israel would celebrate the harvest. It was in the fall. They would celebrate the gathering in of the harvest, but it had a bigger purpose. It was also pointing the people back to when they were in the the wilderness on their way to the promised land and how God provided for them over and over and over again. Uh, We saw that in, in Numbers chapter 20 earlier in our service. And so they gathered at this feast and the feast lasted a full week, seven days, seven days of feasting and worship and several different rituals that they went through. One of those rituals was called the ritual of the pouring out of the water. Each day uh, during the feast, uh, the high priest would take a, a golden flagon. Now think of a flagon. It's, a, it's like a water pitcher. It has a handle. It has a, a spout. And they would put water in it. And during the feast, the high priest would take one of these flagons and go to the pool of Siloam. 
and dip it in and get water. And then the high priest would take the the water pitcher and the people behind him would process back to the temple. When they reached the gates of the temple, trumpets would blast. And then the priest and the people would go into the temple and the priest would reach the altar. He would process around the altar with the, the flag on, with the pitcher of water, as the people would sing the Halal Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. And as they got to Psalm 118, every man in the temple would shake twigs in their right hand and they would raise pieces of citrus fruit in their left hand. And then the priest would pour out the water by the altar as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. All of this was in recognition recognition and celebration of the Lord's provision of water in the desert, in the wilderness, as the people traveled to the promised land. But there was another thing that was in the mind of the people as they went through this ritual. They were also looking forward to something. We, we see what they were looking forward to in the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was given a picture of what happens at the end of time when the Lord God Almighty comes to finally and fully rescue his people. He, he got these visions. He got these pictures of what it was like. And we get one of those in Ezekiel 47 as he's being given this vision of what happens at the end of time. Now listen to what we're told. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water becomes fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh and everything will live where the river goes. What an incredible picture that Ezekiel has given that at the end of time, we see this river of water, living water flowing out and blessing and giving beauty. All of that, the, the Old Testament time of the people of God in the, in the wilderness being provided for. And this promise of the river of water flowing at the end of time. All of that is in the context of what Jesus does in verses 37 through 39. Look again at what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See what Jesus is doing. He's inviting 
On the last day of the feast, which likely meant that it was the eighth day, the feast was a week long, it was seven days, it went from Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath to Saturday Sabbath. On the eighth day, it was considered the great day, that's when everything was cleaned up and the people would start to go home as they reflected on everything that they were hearing. And if that's the case, then this was Sunday that Jesus stood up in the temple and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And when Jesus says that, there's not a person who heard him say it that didn't know exactly what he was saying. This feast, all of this water ritual you've been doing, the, the, the water from the rock in the Old Testament, the promise of the waters flowing from the temple and bringing life at the end of time, it's all about me. It all points to me. I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the one who provides living water. If your soul is thirsty, come to me and drink. Drink the water that I provide. And just to make it abundantly clear that nobody would misunderstand what he was saying about drinking the water, he goes on at the beginning of verse 38 to say, what it means to drink the water that Jesus provides is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his invitation. To believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, to believe that in Him alone we get forgiveness of our sins, that in Him alone we have a debt with God paid for in full, that as we drink the water that He provides, He quenches our thirsty souls. That invitation involves not just knowing facts about Jesus, actively believing in Jesus, drinking the water. Believing in him, submitting to him. There's an interesting story in uh, early scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, book six, the silver chair. Maybe maybe you remember this scene. The young girl Jill sees a lion. And she's terrified, she's scared, and so she tries to run away and she runs into a deep forest. And because she had been running and because she was scared, she was just worn out. And she was extremely thirsty. She thought that she was about to die. But just then she hears some water running somewhere in the distance, kind of a bubbling brook. And so she begins to stagger toward it. But as she gets close to the stream, as she gets close to the brook, she looks down and she sees the lion crouching next to the stream. And the lion says to her, are you not thirsty? And she responded, I'm dying of thirst. The lion said back to her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And Jill says, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I drink? The lion just answered her with a look and a low growl that made Jill realize that he wasn't going anywhere. Then listen to how Lewis describes the scene. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
There is no other stream, the lion said. Jesus invites us to come to him and to drink the living water that he provides. But you have to come to Jesus on his terms, not on yours. You come and you submit yourself to Jesus. And there is no other living water. There is no other stream. There is no other Savior. He makes no promise that He won't change you when you come. He makes no promise that He, will bring your li- that he won't bring your life into conformity with His will. And it may be painful and it may be costly. But Jesus does make a promise to us if we'll drink this living water. You can see that promise in verse 38. He promises that if we drink this water, it will become a river flowing out of our hearts. Now, John must have thought that Jesus wasn't being as clear as he could be. So John gave us an explanation of what he meant there in verse 39. He tells us that what he meant was he's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Today in our Sunday school class, Dr. Dr. Ferguson pointed out that Jesus said to his disciples, "I, I am leaving you so that the Holy Spirit will come. That was the Lord's plan, that Jesus would die on the cross, that he would rise from the grave, he would ascend back to heaven, and then the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus promises that when we come to him and when we drink the water that he offers, when we believe in him, we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail and explanation about what that is, just that that is a true reality. That if you are in Christ, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He lives in you in a real and supernatural way. And did you notice how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit here? We receive the Holy Spirit in our hearts and he flows out of us as rivers of living water. It's plural, rivers Not a drip from a faucet, but a mighty thundering rivers of of living water. And that helps us to understand what further Jesus does. Not only does he invite, not only does he give us this wonderful promise, but he sanctifies and sends us. The Bible is clear that until we die or Jesus comes back, we will deal with sin in our lives. But Jesus promises to give us the Holy Spirit who like a mighty flowing rivers of water cleanses us. Think of it. If you stand in the middle of a flowing river that has a strong and moving current, you're going to get wet. And when the Holy Spirit indwells us with his strong and moving power, we're going to be changed. Over the course of our lives, the Holy Spirit works in us to root out and to wash out our sin more and more. And what a great hope we have. If we have, if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit in us now. God is at work in you. That should also be a deterrent for us in the moment of our temptations. Those moments when we're tempted to look at something that we shouldn't. Those moments when we are tempted to say things that we shouldn't. Or to do things that we shouldn't. In those moments, we remember we have the Holy Spirit in us. God Himself is with us in that moment. And that should motivate us to say no to our sin and yes to righteousness. Not only does he sanctify us, there's also a sending aspect of this. Sending us. The Holy Spirit flows out of our hearts as rivers of living waters. 
And think back to Ezekiel's vision. The living waters flowed out of the temple into all directions, bringing life and beauty to everything around. Part of what Jesus does in filling us with the Holy Spirit is that he uses us as a means to have the Holy Spirit flow through us in every direction to bring life and beauty and health to those around us. The living waters of Jesus, the living waters of the Holy Spirit flow out of us to bless and to encourage and to challenge others. I wonder, do you ever think about your day that way? As you get up and you get ready, as you're heading out, whether it's to go to work or wherever else you might be going, do you think of it, the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you and that through you, God pours out the Holy Spirit to be a blessing and encouragement to others? It's part of what Jesus does through us. It should motivate us to go and to tell people about the living waters of Jesus that can quench their thirsty souls. It should motivate us to go out and live our lives in such a way in our action and our deeds that people are blessed and helped and encouraged and made to flourish. This is what Jesus does. He invites, he promises, and he sanctifies and sins. Lastly, I want you to notice what Jesus causes. Because of who he is and because of what he does, he causes belief and division. We read in verse 31 that some believed. In fact, it says many believed. There will be people in heaven that you'll be able to talk to if you want that were there that day in the temple hearing Jesus teach that day and believed on him. As we read in Acts in the early days of the New Testament church, the Lord brought thousands of people to belief in him. As we read in church history, we read about the Lord bringing hundreds of thousands and millions of people to faith in Christ. We hear stories about how the Lord is at work in places like China and Iran and Iraq, Saudi Arabia and even Israel itself bringing people to faith in Christ. What a blessing it is. What an encouragement it is to be God's people and to see him at work building his church and bringing people to faith in Christ. Jesus causes belief. But we also see that Jesus causes division. You can see that several places in verses 40 through 52. You can see it in the crowd in verses 40 to 43. Some of the crowd believed that he was a prophet like Moses who was prophesied to come in Deuteronomy 18. Some of the crowd believed that Jesus was truly the promised Christ. Some of the crowd believed that Jesus was just a man without the necessary credentials that were promised in the Old Testament. Some of the crowd got angry and they wanted to get, get him arrested. You can see the division with the soldiers in verses 45 through 49. The Pharisees and the chief priests had sent these temple police officers to arrest Jesus, but they didn't. And when they come back, the Pharisees want to know why not. It's because they were so amazed at what he had said. Well, that brought division between the Pharisees and the temple police officers. You can see division within the Pharisees themselves in verses 50 to 52. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees who had spoken to Jesus back in John chapter three, he questioned the other Pharisees, asking them to be faithful and honest to the law. The rest of the Pharisees said they could care less if Jesus was treated fairly. What's all of this showing us that Jesus brings division? Well, it means that we need to expect that that's still a reality today. Jesus causes division among people, and so we shouldn't be surprised and we should expect it in our lives as well. Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John chapter 16, Jesus, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we close this morning, if you walk with Jesus in this life, if you submit to his word, if you believe and live in according with what the word says, then you can expect that there are going to be tribulation. There's going to be tribulation. That there's going to be division because of Jesus. And if you look into your life and you don't see any tribulation and you don't see any division, it could be for one of a couple reasons. One. Perhaps the Lord is being gracious to you and giving you a season of peace, in which case give him thanks. But two, perhaps the reason why you don't see tribulation in your life, perhaps the reason why you don't see division in your life is because you're living more like the world than as a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, we need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive us and start living like what the word says we should look and be like. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus causes. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for, for John writing these things down for us. What an amazing thing it is that we can pick up this book and read about the life of our Savior. We pray, Father, that as we do that, you would help us to grow in our love for him. Help us to grow in our motivation and ability to live our lives in a way that brings him honor and glory. We pray, Father, that as we meditate on who he is, as we meditate on all that he's done, that you would give us strength to endure tribulation and division because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that now, even as we come to this table, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.